everybody. Welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. Hi, Molly. Hi, JR. We are... Sometimes he goes by Jay, and it confuses me when other people call him Jay. Uh, you know why I did that? Because, yes, whenever I would sign things, if I sign them JR, people would call me Junior. And if I was a junior... And guys, it drives him nuts to it be wouldn't, called Junior. It wouldn't bother me if I was a junior, but I'm not actually a junior. JR is my initials. J. Ryan is my full name. So it bugs him to no end if he gets called Junior. Well, it's like you being called Harriet. You're not Harriet. So why <laughs> I'm call Harry. you why call you Harriet? You know? That's, so that's true. Just like that's a, not your name. Right. Okay, yes. We are a happily married couple with four children, ten through two years old. We're old parents, you guys. Most of the peers in our circle are in their early 30s. Are in their early 30s. <laughs> and we're in our early 40s. <laughs> so anyway, um, thank you for joining us. Great to have you here. Um, we I, we usually don't know what we're talking about, although you'd mentioned... I plan we a couple conversation starters. Yes. But, but we, we, don't, never, we don't yeah. hash out the conversations. Although I do want to start off with the story I t- couldn't not tell you last night, because it was just... It was burning in my mouth, and I had held it in for too many days already. So I had to... <laughs> Go for it. Well... So you guys, our kids take this class at our local Audubon Center, a science class. It's an hour and 45 minutes, one day a week. And I don't know what these ladies do, but it's magical because the very first day, and our kids are, I mean, they're homeschooled kids, so they've got anxiety around peers, meeting new people, and they're also my kids, and so they've got anxiety meeting new people, and we drop them off. You're going to spend an hour and 45 minutes. New teachers, new location, entirely other than the two girls, Lily and Elise, are in the same class. So they had each other. But the funny thing is, they get in the car afterwards, and I'm like, so did you guys hang out with each other from the very first class? And like, no, we made new friends. And I was like, okay, maybe you're not as much my children as I was projecting on you. But they they get in the car after the very first class, and they're like, can we sign up for the next session? We love this so much. So we are now on session two of it, session one. And I I love the class because it complements my parenting style so much. I am on a scale of one to 10. I'm going to ask you this, actually. On a okay. scale of one to 10, how much would you label me a free range parent? Um, I would say you're probably seven. I put myself at a seven too. Yeah. Like our kids are I mean, barefoot outside a lot, you guys. We live right. on two but you're acres. You're not you're you're hardcore for structure. I mean, yeah, in, that's indiscipline. You yeah, want the kids. You've got a formula, you're like let's you you don't I guess when you say free range homeschooler parent or whatever, like I imagine your kids just learning whatever they want. There's, there's kind no of different like different kind of, definitions of free range. Yeah. But like I I I would say ninety eight percent of the time I generally know where my kids are. Whether we're at a park or at our cabin and with fields and or at our house, you know, I generally know if they're on the property. <laughs> but they spend a lot of time unmonitored outside and we try to do things where they get to learn and grow and you know, climb a tree so that they are growing in balance and things like that. And these Audubon ladies are like, yeah, you know those trees over there? Climb them as high as you're comfortable. Emphasis on as high as you're comfortable, but we're not going to keep track of you. Just, you know, you're not allowed to go in the parking lot. 
That's the hard and fast rule is the kids can't go in the parking lot. But the very first day, they're like, we believe in natural consequences here. So there were these huge mud puddles the first day. And they're like, you are welcome to go splash around in those very attractive mud puddles. But you're going to be outside for the next two hours. So if you get mud in your shoes or splash water in your boots, you're going to be cold and have muddy feet for the next two hours. It's your choice. You may, you know, and they, and then just nothing more than that. Cause I, I actually have a tendency to be like, it's your choice, but I'm going to suffer the consequences of you making a poor choice. So I'm going to right. steer you and try to control you to if the, if the stakes are high, which actually leads me to another story. When the stakes are low, I'm all about natural consequences. When we were at a party at church a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a gal who's just a couple years younger than I am, but she doesn't have kids. In Faith, there was a dance. There was a dance floor, and the kids are dancing. And so Faith, who is two, she is two and eleven, eleven twelfths. I just told somebody she's that <laughs> close to being three. But so she's two, and she comes over, and of course she has she has her water bottle that has a lid and a straw and whatnot. She opts for the solo cup of water, and she's tr- not only drinking out of a solo cup full of water, she's also trying to maneuver in a folding chair to sit down on her bottom where she picked up the solo cup while she's on her knees. So you guys with two-year-olds can picture a two-year-old in a dress holding a cup full of water trying to go from being on her knees to sitting on her bottom. And I just kept chatting away to this gal that I haven't seen in a long time. And she finally, she was like, I am really, really struggling with anxiety right now about this situation. Like, I'm terrified that she's going to spill water on herself. And I was like, and then what? You know, it, the battle for me is I deal with the possibility of spilled water or I have a fight of switching out water sources. Yeah. And I know that that's going to be a fight because she clearly chose one over the other. And I was like, you know, if it were Kool-Aid and she's she's wearing a white dress, yeah, I'd probably try to be more cautious it's water. It's not going to hurt the church floor. It's not going to hurt her dress. Like she might cry for a few minutes, but there's so much fun stuff going on. I'll rummage around in the car and my car is always full of so much stuff. There's assuredly a spare t-shirt in there from one of my four kids, or she just won't wear a shirt. She's too, I'm free range. You know, maybe that makes me a (laughs) 7.5. So in she, a public, at a in a public public event, yeah, you know, but she's too. Sure, it's not required. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, she did not spill water, but this mom was like, "What a weird mental calculus you made in an instant! Like you just looked at her with this cup of water and the likelihood that she was gonna spill it, and you were like, risk worth taking, you know." And she's like, "I just am so not used to." <laughs> thinking like that because i don't like, you moms right. operate on a different plane because that to me seems like a really high risk situation and we'll see it would be if it was child number one right that's probably true too but it's child number four yeah so you've gotten through this point where you're like i'm not even gonna yeah these stereotypes i see things like for some reason this meme keeps popping up on my instagram about the difference between child number one and child number two and i'm like i was a little bit slow on the curve because if somebody genuinely is saying they've let go this much between child one and child two. They're way more on it than I am because it took me a couple more kids to be that that much more relaxed. But yeah, for sure. So anyway, the some aud- people are wound tighter than others, babe. Yeah, some people. <laughs> some people <laughs> like to control their world. So tell. So, so tell. 
Tell them about, so go the back to Audubon, Audubon Center. Okay, first session, Audubon Center is called Nature CSI. And they're learning about clues that animals leave behind um, them. And so they're literally in this outdoor nature center with ponds and right next to the Yellowstone River. They're finding muskrat holes in the side of the pond. They're looking, they're making casts of footprints of rabbits and coyotes and bobcats. Not that those are all in the area, but they have like molds that the kids are making the casts out of. They're molding pretend poop like practicing making the poop to identify like well i made rabbit poop i made coyote poop (laughs) did you know that coyote poop turns white when it's really old and i was like dog poop does too because i've let it get that old in our yard before (laughs) oh can we do that no no um so so after four sessions in identifying all of these things their final class was i now that i think about it i'm pretty sure they had highway patrol do this for them they they claimed that they found a dead deer on the edge of the property. <laughs> and it was, you guys, an actual dead deer. <laughs> this class is worth every penny. I mean, so our kids are s- our kids are snooping around an actual dead deer trying to find signs of why it died. Now Titus's class, the older kids' class, decided that it had probably been hit by a car. Lily and Elisa's class, they're in kindergarten and third grade. They thought maybe a raccoon had done it because they found <laughs> raccoon footprints around it. And I was like, I mean... Deer, side of the road. Yeah. Did they palpate the deer I hope for crepitus? Like then they feeling, sprayed their hands with toxic feeling, hand sanitizer. Feeling for broken bones and things. I, and... I hope not. <laughs> they were just scouting out for signs of other... deer. And, so... So this class, eight eight weeks now going on into spring, is things that fly. I can't it has kind of a fun, catchy name, but it's things that fly. So they're doing bugs, bats, and birds. And this last time well, so they, they have like an owl wing, a stuffed owl wing that they've gotten to pet and feel the different types of feathers. And they're gonna do owl pellets, which is super fun. Um, but they this time I don't I don't even know what the topic was, why they were doing this. Maybe they were talking about the phrase bird brain or something. But they had the kids, at least Elise and Lily's class, so it's kindergarten through third grade, they had a hula hoop and the kids had to jump through the hula hoop. But before they did, they would <laughs> they would flip a coin and heads was Sorry, it wasn't actually coming. a hula hoop it was a window and you hit the window <laughs> and fall down dead <laughs> so at least i go to pick him up and i find this out because lisa's like i got to be a bird zombie i flew into a window and i died <laughs> and this other mom addy is picking her girls up with me and she's like Oh, my girls have for sure experienced that. You know, I have a very clear memory and a picture of my kid, like, wrapping a dead bird that had flown into a window of our old house, you know, and just died on contact. And then we find out that the friends that I told this story to last night actually had a duck fly through (laughs) their living room window. They live near a body of water, and a duck actually flew through two panes of their window and then and they're like, what is going on? Flopping around early <laughs> flopping in the morning, around the super room. early in the morning, like half dead duck 
that had just flown through two panes of a window. So, but and then that led to the conversation of like, so did what? You know, we asked him, how did you? Do it? He's like, oh, you just grab it by the head and twist it and like spin it around. And Apparently, I was like, really? that's what goose that's hunters kill? do. Yeah, that's how you kill when a your duck. goose. Isn't all dead. It was. It was um, which anyway. Were, so if were. you guys are at a loss for things to do for school, if you are a homeschooler. You can always get a hula hoop and flip a coin, and heads heads you make it through, tails you're dead, or something. Maybe did you did you explain that it's because birds can't tell a window from not? No, I didn't. But kids can't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> My parents in our old house used to wham right in the sliding yeah, glass did. door. The big sliding glass door going out to the pool that they had when I was young. Kids would always just run that long into right, it. Just right or through the screen. That movie, that Those screens, just right through the yeah, screen. Yeah, the screen, too. That movie Spanglish, where they end up getting stickers for the... I don't even I remember, remember the... Growing, I remember growing up, being at somebody's house. I don't remember what happened, but somebody ran through a screen. And then Dad immediately went and replaced the screen, because apparently he had extras. And then, somebody and then about five minutes later, another, another kid just rips right through the screen. You can get... We actually have had... Um, we should see if we can link this on Amazon for people. You can actually get metal grates that you you screw into a screen door if it's a, if it's a full screen door. And if it's only half height, now the kid's going to run through the screen door and get hung up on the grate. No, it <laughs> stops. Through. It stops the force of them. But we have those. We bought those uh, last year. We bought those. I really liked them. Or two years ago, we bought the Velcro screen things with the magnetic closures. It's just like a hanging yeah, fabric. I was really happy with that because when the kids run through, except. It, the first one you got was the as seen on TV one. Yeah, that was a bad and one, and that wasn't a good quality no, one. No boy, but no. the one where the the magnets are actually sewn into the edging. I think yes. we got it on Amazon, didn't we? I I don't know, but it was great. I'll make a note to link it in my show. Notes. It was great for kids and dogs alike, and actually worked much more effectively than I've started the screen, in, in, the in, in screen door we had in a vain effort to get the show up quicker as molly mentions things normally what happens when i do the show we just talk and talk and talk and talk and then i sit down to do the show and i'm like uh do you remember everything. what we talked about can you send me links and so now i'm uh jotting stuff i'm trying to jot stuff down so okay so i have a follow-up comment for you uh-huh. you've are we've already linked uh as I've been listening to Raising the Challenging Child. We've linked it multiple times, but I've been eking my way little bit by little bit through it as I have time. And one of the things that I was able, listened to and made a note, mental note about, and actually got to apply last night, was they talk about setting boundaries with kids and that kids who are not used to having boundaries usually test a new boundary almost immediately. So the Raising the Challenging Child author, the treatment center that she she has, they'll like these kids have major problems that come in and they'll pick things that are doable for the kids and say things like, You're not allowed to spit inside here or we don't swear here. And Parents will be like, that do- that rule doesn't work. And then they're like, that's because you break your own rule. You tell your kids, mm. no sc- no screens at the at the dinner table, and then you're on your phone. That's not an enforceable rule because you won't even do it to yourself. No swearing, and then dad swears like a sailor. So they're like, not only do you set the rules and you also have to abide by them, but you also set the rules and 
kids will almost immediately test them and you don't over you don't overreact but you need to reinforce and remind of the rule almost acting like hey remember you probably already forgot this but we don't do this at our so we had a little boy at our house yesterday who isn't used to having rules enforced and yesterday tuesday tuesday and he, I asked him not to do something at the dinner table, and he literally turned him around and did it immediately again. And I was probably more sharp in my language than the Raising the Challenging Child experts would have been, but I didn't freak out at all. I was like, hey, remember we just said we don't do this at our house. And he was like, hmm. And he didn't do it again. And um, so I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. And apparently... In more extreme circumstances, in the book, they say, if kids are really used to getting their own way, there was an example where they told the kids, no no phones after, like, a pair of teenage girls, no phones after 10 p.m., like, you're supposed to turn your phones in. The girls just flat out refused. And the parents were like, what do we do? It's, it's going to come to a physical altercation with teenage girls mm-hmm. if if we try to enforce this rule. And the counselor was like, call and cut off their service. So that's what they did, is they just called the phone company and cut off service to two phones, period. They refused to abide by the rules, so they lost their phones full stop. And the next, and that showed that the parents were willing to go to extreme measures in order to enforce these new boundaries that they were setting up. And apparently then other boundaries became easier to enforce because they had so effectively enforced that one. And they got their phones back after a couple of weeks and they always abided by those rules, which seems so cut and dry, you know, like surely it's not that easy, but it's worth a try. It depends on what the, yeah. what the infraction is. Yeah, if you will. that's true. It's, but apparently they do like, like they've had, they've done this sort of thing with kids who cut and things like mm. that. And it's like, it's when you have a deeply ingrained behavior, it's, obviously not something that the kid can stop doing overnight but at least they know that you are going to be there encouraging them and enforcing something to make them stop the behavior and they will go for longer and longer stretches before relapsing in the treatment context even with some of these more extreme behaviors so guys i keep learning from this book and as i learn from it i'll keep sharing with you guys my tidbits but Enforce your rules with a gentle reminder, and it only takes one or two times. Lately, it, it reminded me too as you enforce rules. Like, I think as I as I think on, I don't know what context this was that we were talking about this, but have being home being a safe place. And then you sent me that that picture. I think it was Lily who wrote about Homer. Homer. She, oh yeah. no, that was Titus. Titus. Titus wrote. He wrote. He's like, I like the Odyssey because. You know, or I like Homer because Odysseus comes back home and it's safe. You know, uh, or something it's, like that. It's a it's a happy ending. Yeah, it's a happy ending. But he said mm-hmm. it's home is safe, and it got me thinking that there's a lot of context where, you know, you raise kids in. You know, it's parenting. It's it was the parenting class. We had difficult the sex some of the sex stuff with kids, is setting up uh, a, an environment now where it's safe to talk about things. And so you don't flip out, you don't freak out, you're like, oh, where did you hear that? Ah!" Or if they find, you know, not if, when they come across pornography. Right. To to have it be like, 
this is this is a dangerous thing to you that you're encountering. The safest thing for you to do to protect your brain is to come tell me immediately. Yeah, but not not freaking out because mm-hmm. then it's not safe to come to your parents with things later on, mm-hmm. you know. And if you know theoretically, I mean my kids aren't old enough yet, but I've been told this by older parents that if, you know, when their child comes to them later in life be with, you know, in high school or whatever with something really heavy, they know it's safe to talk to their parents because it was safe to talk to their parents about little things back then too. It's really big aspirations and a lot of pressure on us. To oh, I don't hold out any well. hope whatsoever. No, not in the <laughs> you, slightest. You hold out hope. That's why Sort of, but I don't react Tyler. well. Like the other night coming home from judo, I had to apologize to all four kids because Elise was being crazy and that just sent me over the top and I dump them all off at home. I'm like, go get, I'm going to get your sister from grandma's house, get inside, get your toothbrush, get to bed. And then in my head, because I have an overactive imagination, in my head I was just imagining Lily and... Elizabeth and Titus just getting really, really angry with Elise because, you know, I turned off the radio, everyone's sitting in the car on the drive home, staring out the window. It was not a fun drive home. And they're blaming Elise for not having a fun drive home. And I'm like, well, it's not Elise's fault. It's my fault because I, I'm the one that responded poorly. Elise is just being Elise. You know, I'm the one that lost it and created a bad environment. So come on, apologize to all the kids. So yeah, my aspirations are really... Aspirations are high hopes are hopefully realistic but at the same time i mean who is it i i you know i must i've been guilty of seeing things like like oh my gosh our girls are so dramatic i'm dread when they become teenagers but then i have friends whose teenagers are just absolutely delightful and they love being the teenagers love being around them because we're old enough to have friends with teenagers Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, the teenagers love being around the parents the parents love being around the teenagers and I've been challenged I think Paul Tripp in his Age of Opportunity book is like look the the whole teenage rebellion thing is not inevitable like this being a teenager is actually a modern first world invention in in the olden days and in more agrarian cultures you go from being a kid to being an adult. Even look at like like Laura Ingalls Wilder books. Like mm-hmm. they go from she goes from I mean she's still a teenager when she gets married, but she goes from being a kid in her parents' household to being a married wife on her own homestead. And her husband Almanzo goes from being a kid in his parents to leaving their house and being a homesteader. So there's no like weird teenage I think I'm an adult but I don't have adult responsibilities or adult privileges and um in most other cultures from what I understand the whole concept of teenager is just a very first world modern idea that we don't necessarily have to buy into in I mean certainly they're going to be part of our culture <coughs> And certainly, mush brain applies, right? <laughs> if you guys haven't been with us, the teenage brain is basically goes through the same metamorphosis, and they've done MRIs to show this, the same metamorphosis that a caterpillar does going into a butterfly. But it's not, how long is a caterpillar in its chrysalis? Like 10 days? I don't know. This is more like 12 years. <laughs> of insurance companies had it figured out folks yeah or car rental, car rental companies where they wouldn't rent a car to you until you're 25 that's actually when especially the male brain by functional mris shows full adult functioning but in the meanwhile 
especially when you get hormones and adrenaline going in a teenage brain, they actually use what the the what the challenging child people call it back brain. The whole brain child people call it your downstairs brain. It's your you know your frontal cortex cortex is your thinking processing brain your back brain or your downstairs brain is the reptilian adrenaline fight or flight reactive self-protective just do it don't think about it part of your brain Mm -hmm. and that is the part of your brain that dominates when especially when you're in highly charged situations like you're with your friends you're with your girlfriend things like that when you're a teenager that's the part of your brain that runs the rest of you and so I have a friend who tells her five boys, like, you're going to get to teenagers and your brain's going to turn to mush. And, um, you know, but I've the thing is, is she's not just like, you're going to be dumb teenagers and we'll just suffer through it. But she's like, look, I'm telling you this now because I want you to start trusting me that I've got your back, that I'm going to help you process things and be wise. And I'm going to be Miriam Grossman is an author about sex, teen, you know, teens and sex. And sex ed stuff. And she says that uh, they need scaffolding holding them up. And so we're going to be, we're training. So I've, taking off of this friend, I've been telling Titus, like, you're going to have a mush brain. And actually I have a sticky note on my desk, like, that just says mush brain. So I'm reminded every now and then to talk to Titus about mush brain. Are you sure it's not going to, like, wreck wreck his feelings now, knowing he's going to turn into mush brain? Um, I'm not really concerned about, I feel like he's got a pretty good self-esteem going right now. (laughs) (laughs) Too good, you guys. Right. It's too good. Well, that's part of the problem too, though, is if you have too much self-esteem, you're going to be super self-reliant, right? Yeah. You're not going to take counsel. And so I want him to start recognizing that he needs to be humble and rely on us and listen to our wisdom when he's in mush brain, I mean now, but also when he's in mush brain stage. Because you're going to be so full of yourself and not think clearly. And those two together seem like a really, really toxic And now I want to go listen to The Offspring. I don't know what that means. Self-Esteem, the band, the grunge band from the 90s. You remember Offspring? I mean, I remember, I've heard of them. a song called Self-Esteem. It's really, really popular. Hmm. It's good stuff. Okay. Totally dating myself. I was a grunge kid. We're old. Um, speaking of songs, uh-huh. Easter songs, isn't that a nice segue I just did there? Yes, I say you, I teed you up really nice. Without even knowing it. Super good, yeah. Um, probably the only big thing of substance that I had written down that I wanted to talk about today. was Easter how- songs? Well, specifically, the song Crown Him With Many Crowns was the song that I really gravitated to this Easter. And... The idea behind the song is that the Jesus's resurrection was his coronation in an earthly sense where he's this humble hidden king riding on a donkey and being mistreated and looked down upon not believed in even by his own family and then He dies on a cross, and then he rises again from the dead after being assuredly dead. And the New Testament 
always talks about his resurrection in terms of his his lordship and his power. And I just feel like the American church needs to be embodying more of that kingly power. In the sense that, I, I guess maybe the reason I was, I also read in World Magazine from an author that I usually really like, but I'm, because I like Shout that. out to World, guys. <laughs> right? No, I, I mean, it's, it's this gal publishes op-eds in there a lot, and normally I just really love them and find them very profound. And it just had this tone of tentative fear and I realized part of it is in Montana, we live in kind of a COVID bubble where I guess we have enough rugged, independent spirit. Plus, we live this socially distanced lifestyle. Plus, we're more of a red state. So we're not Florida, but, you know, we but we're we, naturally social distance anyway. Well, we like it that way. Well, I mean, yes, but we also like we haven't get off my land. We, we haven't had a mask mandate for several months now and our case count has remained remarkably low and so people are just feeling like okay so that maybe that was a safe move for us and we can be more adventuresome so you go to a park and kids are playing at parks and you go to a restaurant and people are sitting together eating and laughing and living more way more normal lives i mean i think people are still cautious people wear masks at church sometimes Mm -hmm. and things like that but Um, And it depends on your own level of risk, you know, how much risk you can tolerate. But but compared to other parts of the country with denser populations and maybe being more accustomed to government control and letting the government tell you what's safe and what's appropriate, I just... So reading this just partly struck a nerve with me because it just seems so foreign to me that kids are still not in schools and playgrounds are still banned off and whatnot but this gal it just had this tone of fear and here we're in easter and i've been following the case of james coates who is the pastor in canada who was arrested for continuing to preach and hold church services even though the government had mandated that he not do that and they've now just this week the government has built a chain link fence around the whole property and barred it off. And so now the church is having this new challenge of, okay, so there's no challenge. Uh, well, it is it's a like, challenge because they're trying, like, what do we do to wisely respond? And the gut instinct of Aaron Coates, who is James Coates, wife on Instagram was, <laughs> we are not a building people. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. Like, it, you can't, you can't shut down the church, but I, I've been really challenged following this because even though I think people can disagree in good faith about the best way for the church to engage with the government and what is what is genuinely the government having a concern to keep us safe versus what is the government overstepping its bounds. I think there's a very healthy and appropriate conversation to be had there. But I really admire them for what I perceive as confidence in Jesus's lordship Jesus's care of them and in the power of the church to not have to, the church didn't stop meeting while their pastor was in jail. And Mm -hmm. as far as I know, he's their only pastor. So they didn't just wither because their leader was gone, but they continued meeting and singing and being joyful 
and probably more than ever, feeling empowered by God's presence and by God's Spirit working in them. Okay, i got to stop for a breath. But just on Easter Sunday, I just had all these things going through my brain, and I was thinking, Paul says in Philippians that I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. And I was thinking, what does knowing the power of the resurrection, how does that impact me? And how I live. Well, would, I mean, just in the in the mit, in the matter of you know, you're talking about his coronation, his resurrection was his earthly coronation as king. What would it mean to have somebody in power as king already? Um, I think some practical applications, if you were living in that way, it would be, you know, if you can imagine, we have a new king installed. We don't see him all the time. My little community's going under, but there's still a king. He's going. He's He's promised to do something about some of this stuff. So I can see where you're like, a, from a human standpoint, you know, we could, we could on the one hand become more comfortable in, uh, in the uncertainty, knowing there's an actual, we have a king, he's been crowned king, he's, he's on the throne, he's good, so we can live in a little bit more uh, comfort and security in a very uncertain time. But on the other hand, there's always that, there's always that human nature in us. It's like, well, when's he actually going to do something? Mm-hmm. When's he going to fix something? Which, I mean, the Why, Psalms are full just, of how long, O oh Lords. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, how it impacts, like for me, impacting my life, I think, you know, in this particular season of my life, it's a little more of just having faith that he will, it does, and is restoring things and not giving up on people. Mm-hmm. And not giving up on relationships and, you know, stepping out, continuing to step out in faith that things are being redeemed, will be redeemed, or have already been redeemed, depending on how you look, how you want to view, from what angle you want to look at Christ's death and resurrection. In that aspect, things have already been redeemed. Um, and then just stepping out in faith in that every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to be more aware of like, okay, am, how am I, am I living right now? Am I am I approaching this broken relationship or this uh, this problem in such a way that reflects the fact that I don't believe there's a sovereign king on the throne, or that I do, and he's actually in the act of restoring? You know, I think so many times Christians uh, are like, well, I'm just I just can't wait to get to heaven. I just can't wait to get to heaven. I just you know, and they they look. They look forward towards heaven, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself, but that's where the emphasis is. But, you know, if you look at scripture, we're not designed, we weren't created to live in heaven. We were created to live on earth. God says he'll have a new heavens and a new earth. So that's even, even that's temporary. But, but don't you the think bulk people of our, who say, I can't wait till heaven are actually like just longing for longing for jesus is yeah but i also don't think remember remember a couple episodes it was people are weird and hard yeah and dumb i don't think people think that deeply about what they're saying and then you know we live the 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 life that we have been given to live is here on this earth it's not in heaven and so there's a recognition of... But but we were designed not, to live on an unbroken, unfallen right, earth. Right, for so sure. The so the longing for things to made right is right. okay. And that long, exactly. That longing is okay. Everything is okay there. But I sometimes I think we need to pull back a little bit and 
continue to look and, and look deeper at how God's working today, right now, because in our circle, is... in our midst, because he is already here. He died, rose again, conquered, redeemed that. And if it hasn't been redeemed, if the brokenness that we're experiencing now obviously isn't redeemed yet, it's the already but not yet. It's already been done, but it's not yet happened. You know, living in that in that already but, but not yet. As the creeds say, he is seated at the right mm-hmm. hand. Right. He is actively ruling. And right. I feel like for me living more conscious of having a ruling king means less fear. But sure. I mean in the public sphere I I mean, you were asking me last night, well, what if this situation at church blows up? And, you know, are you concerned about how you being friends with this person is going to impact it? And I was like, no. If somebody's <laughs> going to think less of me for a situation that somebody else can't even necessarily control, um, I I don't actually kind of... I mean, the just thinking guys, they're like, you know, people call us Uncle Toms, people insult us, people tell us we're race traitors, like all these things, and they're like... I don't care. You can tell me, you can say about me whatever you want. And I've maybe partly by personality, which is not always a good thing because I've had to grow in sanctification in, in a good way, caring what other people think, i.e. caring about other people <laughs> at all. That has not always been a strength of mine. But, but actually caring about other people without regard for reputation or standing or their opinion of me and i feel like that in the just thinking podcast on crt when they said that i feel like it was this huge light bulb moment for Mm. me like i i'm just gonna embrace that if people think that i am an ignorant fundamentalist because i don't embrace these enlightened progressive ideals for whatever aspect of our culture is currently in vogue I'm actually at a point where I don't care because as Martin Luther said, my conscience before God is clear. I am in the word more than I've ever been in my entire life, not only for myself, but then for teaching it to my kids. I'm searching out not only what do I believe about important topics, but why do I believe them? And not only why do I believe them, why do I believe that they are, number one, in accord with God's just and holy law, mm-hmm. which is, number two, in accord with his perfect and good character, and number three, a reflection of his love for people, for his creation. And so if he says in his word and in observable natural law, this is the way the world works best, then I can confidently in love proclaim to other people for example you know boys are boys and girls are girls i am not a hateful bigot for saying god created man male and female and he created our bodies good and the gender distinctions are good and it's actually for our good to acknowledge these gender distinctions for example if somebody who looks like a woman goes into the hospital complaining about particular 
health problems, heart attacks for men and women present differently. So if, if a doctor doesn't know what gender you are, you could actually die because you're not getting the right treatment before they get your clothes off and realize what you actually are. Like, these are actually very fundamental ways of loving people well because you can't change, no matter how you change with giving somebody hormones or giving them surgery or clothing and makeup, you can't change the fact that a heart attack is going to present differently in a man and a woman. You can't change... All, I mean, I could go on and on about this, as you know. But what I'm saying is, I... Because I'm directing my attention more and more to the king who is reigning on the throne, I feel more emboldened to state things like this without regard for the inevitable haters who are going to say that I'm being unloving and I'm being unscientific because I know that I'm not and I don't answer to you. And if you are choosing to live as Romans 1 says, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, that's between you and God. And your arrows don't, they don't touch me. Uh, yeah. So so for me, that's been a real um, liberating thing about just the fact that the lamb is upon the throne. You made a comment about being... You know, going going a little bit farther back in your conversation to our conversation last night, and something occurred to me as as we're as I was thinking on that. But the other, you made a comment that last night in that conversation that goes along the lines of living in such a way that there's a king on the throne, and that comment is just because this situation or this person or this whatever it is over here is broken doesn't negate all the work that god did through these people or through that organization or through that thing so just because the world is broken doesn't negate all of the stuff doesn't erase all of the work that god has already done and i think there's something to be said there because we we want to fault just in our in our natural we want to when we want to give credit to people and yeah. not God a lot. Do and we think, forget that a lot. Yeah. Do you think, when you were saying that, just before you said that, I was like, that's, that's exactly where I was going with it. But if it, it's more because I want to take credit for the good that I've done, mm-hmm. right? For me, anyway. Like it, it, it's all about me. <laughs> and so, if, if I believe that God has... Even if I'm giving glory to God still, like, isn't it amazing that God has chosen me to do these great works in people's lives or to whatever? And so there's this urge to be self-centered in it. And then if I, if I fall, like if, if I break my leg and I'm no longer able to do X, or if I you know, fall in sin, or if you and I are having marital relation, you know, marriage problems, that then that hinders God's ability to work through that person, rather than the humility of saying, I was maybe the vessel, but God will do what God will do in these people's lives, regardless of my willingness, yeah. my my capabilities, my availability, anything that I have to offer is 
I heard of, I had a, I feel like it was a seminary professor who was like, it's like God, God using us is like letting your kid help you bag groceries at the grocery store, like <laughs> in the self checkout line. It is that's, that's a good analogy. So much better to go through the self checkout line without kids, because all they do is flash the thing up on the screen twice, or don't put it on the thing yet, and then you're waiting with the red light flashing above you, waiting for the really slow, really overworked person to come out and punch their code in and be like, oh, you do only have one thing of celery. Can you put it in the bag so it measures it correctly? I mean, and, you know, so so this is God letting us take some t- some credit for the work that he does when it would be so much more efficient. I bagged the groceries, Dad. Uh-huh. <sighs> Did you make the money? Did you do the shopping? Did yeah, you did plan you the meal? The did me- you yeah. All the drive to the but... store? Did you... You know, I, I had... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. Um, it On the topic of Easter, I've been reading... I've just been struck recently by... I'm reading through right now. I'm finishing up Exodus in my Bible reading plan. And he's going through and, and instructing the people on how to approach him and how to engage with him, interact with him. So just this morning he was talking about um, sanctifying uh, Aaron's robes and the altar and the very specifics, put blood on each point of the horns and everything else. And it just made me wonder, like, if one of the sons did not put on those consecrated robes of, you know, high priestly robes and walked into that room, God would wipe them out dead. Mm-hmm. It's boom, done. You didn't do it right. God's killing you. He did. You didn't didn't two it. of Aaron's sons end up dying? I can't remember. I'm not there yet. But anyway, so uh, anyway, so all these things, if you don't do it right, you're dead and you don't have a choice. Like, it's not like, it's not like now where it's like, we'll go to church. Okay, well, I'll go to church or, you know, you should pray and read your Bible every day and, you know, witness and love your neighbor and all the, all the things, right? And we have a cho- we we choose not to do that all the time. We're like, eh, they didn't have a ch- they would die if they didn't you know they didn't have a choice. And you know Easter changed all of that. So suddenly we have the freedom to you know it's like taking your kid to the grocery store to bag groceries, and your kid's like, nah, I'm not gonna bag groceries today. So you go and bag the groceries, and he stands there by the cart and doesn't do anything. Mm. You know, and it's like, hmm, it's just it's. I've just been I, struck by the intensity of the process and the the fact that they didn't have it like they didn't have a choice. Don't you feel like I mean God's holiness has not changed. Right. We've just become way more nonchalant. Yes, but if it wasn't in, for If it wasn't for Jesus. For Jesus, yes. I was going to say But right. his holiness has not yes. changed because somebody had to die. Blood had to be shed in order for them to be pure enough to approach mm-hmm. God's presence. And it just happens that Jesus's blood was of infinite value. Right. And so he was the one who died. But I feel like we could use a way bigger dose of God's holiness than we normally get because the... I think you said something along those lines as we started this conversation. I probably say this all the time. I, well, I mean, so here's... Okay, this is this will be maybe my final thought. Okay. Um, I definitely feel, having read through the Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament, with my kids this year, it's been interesting emphasizing to them, you know, the art gets captured, and they're bringing it back and 
dude sticks his hand out to steady the ox cart, and that's not how you're supposed to carry the ark. And he's he's just trying to protect the the ark from falling over right. into the dirt, right? And instead, he gets struck dead. And we have this. I think our our sanitized, self righteous Western culture just is outraged at that sort of thing. Like he's just he's just doing what he's just trying his best. You know how dare we? How dare God judge sin? And God is forbearing right now in our culture. Like I've been telling people, I remember his name right now, Bart Campolo. Yeah. I've had to Google it. She was every time she tells this you story, guys, she cannot remember his name. I I watched I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I watched the documentary American Gospel Two. I just finished American Gospel One and this is not the episode to talk about it, because we could talk about it for a full episode, but first JR has to watch both of them. Um, and secondly, we need a full episode. But you guys, they are so good and I think so important. In the second one, Bart Campolo, whose dad was Tony Campolo, Bart is a secular humanist. He's like just totally dissing on God to the camera of these Christians who are making this documentary, right? Just totally such a hardened heart towards the things of God that he doesn't even blink when he says... God who would kill his own son, I wouldn't worship a God like that. You know, that God isn't no, that God isn't worthy of my worship. Somebody who would kill their own son. Um, and I was like, if I were the cameraman, I'd kind of be stepping back in case lightning strikes. <laughs> I mean, the audacity to say something like that when I know that not only do we have a holy God, we also have an omnipresent, all-knowing God. And he is right there hearing you say these incredibly blasphemous things about him. And I I want to raise our kids with an awareness that the God who struck the guy, I should have looked up his name before, but I just thought of it right now. The God who struck somebody dead for, uh, for touching the ark. The God who struck Aaron's own son's dead for disrespecting uh, the things of the Lord, the God who opened the ground up to swallow an entire portion of his own camp. I mean, this is still the same God that we get to nonchalantly, you know, when we pray at night as a family and our kids are farting around, that's when I'm like, you are, you are saying, dear God, and approaching in spirit, a holy God, show some respect and, you know, kids... He's You're like, also over it and ready to put him to bed. Well, that too. That too. But, I mean, I feel like I, I, I want to impart to them more of the weight of, yes, in Jesus, we have the freedom to come to God anytime, anywhere, without a sacrifice, all the layers of requirements that you had to approach a holy God in the Old Testament, Jesus' blood did away with. But that right. doesn't mean he's any less holy. And... So imparting to our kids that that holiness of God and the weightiness of speaking about him with reverence and respect and of obeying him, but then, and this is where five minutes ago I said this would be my last point, but then also embracing the joy of obedience because God isn't just holy. He's also eternally relational. That's what the Trinity is. That book that I've never read that but people 
raved right. about years ago, Delighting in the Trinity. You can write that down. Delighting in the Trinity. <laughs> um, uh, write that down, honey. <laughs> Um, and then order it for me on Amazon when you write it down. Just kidding. Um, oops, we're a mess over here, guys. Dropping stuff. Um, no, but th- the whole point of that book, from if what I understand of it is correct, is pointing out that that everything that God is, all of the characteristics of God that we learn about from the Westminster Shorter Catechism and things like that, He is in relationship. And so God is eternally relational, and he's eternally good in relationship. And also, he's, and John Piper has been so good at teaching on this, he's eternally joyful. And the law is a reflection of all of these perfections of his character. And so, not only do I want my kids to feel the weightiness of obedience to a holy God, but also the joy of obedience to an eternally joyful and perfect God. Because, uh, I mean, I can't think of a New Testament verse. I had one on the top of my head and lost it. But I mean, Psalm 119 comes to mind where you look at all these things where the psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It delights my soul, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And how many of us think about God's law as bringing joy to our hearts and bringing peace to our souls and things like that? But that's because... God created his law as a reflection, not only of his perfect character and of his all-knowing character, knowing what's best for us, but out of his joyful character, knowing how to lead us into perfect, blessed, you know, that Asher, you know, um, perfect, blessed life. And um, I don't know, there's this couple that sits a couple rows in front of us in church, and they just like exude joy. And I love having them in front of us in church because I feel like they're they've got to be doing something right. Well, the, uh, we do. Yeah, I love it. We need to wrap up the show, babe. But we do have um, one of our children has been concerned with death recently. Um, we were buckling <laughs> Faith into her car seat, and she kept scooting down in her seat. And then you finally asked her why, and she said. If I sit back, my pants will fall off and I will die. <laughs> She's too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That was an Instagram story. You guys, we've had a lot of comments on Instagram. I can't read them all today. But a couple notable messages uh, that would be that'd be fun to pull out here for folks. Um, if you if you write into us, I might mention you on the show, which is always fun. I had a I had a text from Jeff Moore. Not that Jeff Moore. Molly got it kind of excited too. She's <laughs> Jeff like, Wait, Moore in the what? distance. Jeff Moore in the distance. By the way, he's still around. He's like singing psalms now. Yeah, it's he's he's really talented, babe. Um, I also was told I'm not allowed to mention Paul on the show anymore. Too much Paul. Too much Paul. Molly, you were you were mentioning that Paul. So Paul's listening right now, going, "What? I'm kidding, Paul. Total joke." So anyway, Beth writes uh, on the challenging child. Hello from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Found your podcast through the world and everything in it and just started listening this weekend during our Easter travel. So far, I love it. She wants to thank you, Molly, uh, well, and me too, for specifically talking about our methods uh, and how we're using the book, The Challenging Child. And if you want a link to that, um, go back to uh, last episode, and it's in the show notes, and then a couple other show notes after that. And I'm working on updating our website uh, under the swag store. If you scroll down, I've got a list of recommended things. I'll put it up in there too. Um Anyway, so it was kind of funny. She goes, um, 
I laughed out loud when you said Elise had great ideas to do a project with JR in the garage at the spur of the moment, because this is our son too. He's wanted to go build R2-D2, a wood playhouse, a table for his room, among other things, with my husband. That <laughs> is so Elise. cracks me up. She's always building something, which is nuts. Or creating. She currently has a, a chunk of particle board on the floor of her room. There you go. There you go. I hope so. Uh, so and I, I missed this back in February, and I'm sorry, Andy. Andy from Blacksburg, Virginia. She wanted uh, she wanted to just tell us that her uh, she's wife of Demon the Dentist, mother of five sons, 24, 20, 18, 13, and 11, and a homeschooler. They've been married for about 29 years, though, and she finds much help and encouragement in listening to us, especially in this crazy world, which is good because we don't find much help and encouragement in listening to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you always go to other people for things, which is kind of funny. Uh, so anyway, yeah, thanks for writing in, guys. If you do want to send us a note, you can email us at tb2f at pm.me, or you can send us a postcard on our website, toobusytoflush.com, or you can even send me a text at 406-318-7136. I'm a heavy texter, so I usually always text people back. And if you're Paul, you actually call me and debrief every single episode, <laughs> which is rad. Paul's my cousin. He's super cool. Yep. Super rad. Super rad, Paul. All right. Um, other than that, uh, was there anything we needed to know housekeeping things that people need to know about? I don't think we have housekeeping things besides... Besides that. More bread to cook upstairs. Ooh, that's good. I like bread. Yeah, we got judo coming up tonight. Okay, guys. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to share us with your friends. Uh, give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. And... Uh, I don't have, we don't say anything catchy at the end of our show, except we don't say anything catchy. Turn on some catchy music, okay? Catchy music, yeah. All right. Catchy music. All right, guys, have a great week. Catch you guys next week.